We're going to turn our Bibles tonight in Exodus chapter 15. I don't have the PowerPoint up this evening, but uh, that's fine. Um, Exodus chapter 15, we're looking at verses 1 through 27, and we're, we're going to talk about bitter waters tonight. Bitter waters, that sounds almost as appetizing as the plagues, doesn't it? Bitter water. Anybody ever uh, turn on your faucet and smell sulfur, sulfur that, that strong sulfur smell? And sulfur, I can't even say it. And, uh, ooh, that tastes good, don't it? Bitter water, yes. Uh, I'm not in any way saying that this was sulfur water that they ran into tonight, but they, the children of Israel, definitely ran into some bitter water uh, in our study this evening. Now, over the last couple of weeks, just a, uh, a tiny recap, we have seen God bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the, the Passover took place, that last plague uh, happened. Uh, they killed the Passover, and those that did not kill the Passover lamb and spread the uh, blood on the doorpost, uh, the angel came through that night, and all the firstborn of Egypt were slain. Uh, it says, from Pharaoh even to the servant. And uh, it says, not one of them, you know, there was not one house where, where not, not one was not left dead. Y'all forgive me for my speech tonight. But um, anyway, so God had passed through, and, uh, and he did slay all the firstborn in Egypt. But he had told them to be ready. The next morning, uh, they were ready to go, and uh, God, God's presence and leadership was, uh, was represented in a, a great cloud, a column of a cloud, pillar of a cloud, uh, that stood before the nation of Israel and led them out of the cities of Egypt. We know that they had not had time to prepare breakfast that morning, and so God had told them to throw their, their flour and all, their, and, their, and all the stuff that they needed uh, throw it in the clothes, bind it up, and head on out. And uh, after they got uh, far enough out, they went ahead and stopped for a little while, made some breakfast, uh, made their daily bread, and, and were able to eat and nourish themselves for the, for the journey ahead. Uh, but then God continued to lead them. And so uh, as they continued to follow this pillar by day, pillar of a cloud by day, uh, a pillar of fire by night, uh, it eventually led them to a dead-end stop in the middle, in the middle of the wilderness. And uh, as a matter of fact, it says that they were enclosed in the wilderness. The wilderness had shut them in. Well, God had also placed on Pharaoh's heart to pursue the children of Israel at the right time. And so he begins to chase. He takes his armies, and they uh, pursue the children of Israel. And they finally catch up to them right there at that, that, that dead-end spot uh, that God had led them to. But as the people were, were complaining and, and wondering what they were going to do, Moses, of course, calms them down. He says, he says, be still and wait and see the salvation of the Lord. And God definitely did that. And so we saw that uh, it mentioned that an, the angel that went before them removed and stood between the camp of Israel and the camp of the Egyptians. And also the cloud moved over as well and stood between. If you remember, it says that it was a cloud of darkness to the Egyptians, but it was a cloud of light to the Is Israelites. And all that night, an easter wind blew through, and the, the Red Sea began to part, and the people went ahead, and, and they were able to pass through the Red Sea on dry land. Then, of course, we know that as, after they got over, uh, at just the right time, God released the cloud, and, and the Egyptians were able to see, and they were able to pursue. And so they, they saw a gap, they saw an opening, and they ran through, uh, just as the children of Israel had, except... Uh, when they got in the middle, uh, God messed things up. We see that uh, it says that he looked at them through the pillar of the cloud. He, he, he put them in chaos. 
and uh, he, he made their chariot wheels fall off, and they began to get stuck in the, in the mud down there. And, uh, and eventually, of course, we know that Moses stuck the rod back over the Red Sea. It closed up over uh, Pharaoh's uh, army, and, and, of course, they were all destroyed in the Red Sea. Well, that leads us to the, uh, the verses that we're in today. In chapter 15, the first thing that we see is the Red Sea musical. The Red Sea musical, which takes place in verses 1 through 21. After Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, we find that the entire crowd broke out in song in a way that was probably less like Disney and more like Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody ever watch that movie? Fiddler on the Roof. You need to watch that if you haven't seen it, by the way. But that's what they did. They got over. Anybody ever watch the Disney movie where they're just strolling along and all of a sudden they, they break out in song and you know, just kind of make up as they go, and, and before you know it, the whole city's singing with them and dancing. Everybody magically knows all the words, too. Have y'all ever noticed that? We don't have a lot of Disney movie watchers in here, do we? But, but that's what happens, and, and uh, it seems like that's very similar to what happened once they got across the Red Sea. Uh, it says that, that uh, Moses began to sing. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to see in verse 1, uh, chapter 15, notice this. It says, Then sang Moses... Not just him, but look, and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. So they all knew the words and they all knew the dance steps, okay? And they started going. Uh, and it says, They spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And so he continues on uh, with this song. We find that the women even had uh, their own number in verses 20 and 21, if you'll look over there. It says, And Miriam the prophetess and the sister of Aaron took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So the women had their own solo, and they went out and, and uh, took their timbrels, and, and uh, they just had a big party on the other side, you know, rejoicing in what God had done and, and how he had uh, delivered them. In all seriousness, this song was more like a psalm or a prayer set to music. Now, I, I believe that there was some singing, and, and whether you Baptists, good Baptists, want to believe this or not, I think there was some dancing that was going on on the other side as well. If you've ever seen any of the Middle Eastern people worship, uh, if you've ever seen the Jewish people worship, there's dance in what they do. And, and, uh, and so, I mean, there was, uh, the, I believe they were praising God with, with their whole bodies. They were praising the Lord. And we see them doing that. Uh, we actually can break this song into three different sections here. First of all, we see that they were praising God for his salvation. We find that in verses 2 through 10. Now they sing this. They said, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an inhabitation. Uh, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Didn't even rhyme, but they just kept singing. It says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts have he cast into the sea. He chosen captains, uh, the cho his chosen captains, excuse me, also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency hast thou overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, uh, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap. And the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. He says in verse 10, Thou didst blow with thy wind, and the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. 
What is he describing there in this song? Everything that just happened, right. Yeah, the Egyptians, how they came into the sea and, and God uh, overthrew them with the, uh, the waters of the Red Sea. We also find, as we continue on, the people rejoicing in his awesomeness. And I think that's very much what we see in verse 11. It says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength into thy holy habitation. We see the people were reclaiming his global majesty as well in verses 14 through 19. It says, The people shall hear and shall be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold in the inhabitants of uh, Palestina. Uh, then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thy arm, they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance and in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. That's interesting because they hadn't made a sanctuary yet. We might have a little prophecy going on here. It says, 18, The Lord will reign forever and ever for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And then we've read verses 20 and 21 where Miriam came out with the timbrel and all the ladies, and they joined in the song as well. Now this may seem a little strange for us. Uh, we've never joined into a community song like this before. Um, but this was, this was very much a part of, uh, you know, the entire community of Israel, the entire, uh, what am I trying to say, congregation of Israel joining into a song of praise unto the Lord. And, uh, and of course, we wonder, well, where did, where did these words come in? How did they get all these words to this song? Well, let's keep in mind that uh, the Spirit of God was with Moses, and I believe that, that he led him to... Uh, the words of this song and, and, you know, the songs that should be sung. Let's keep in mind also that most of the time when they sang songs, it wasn't like we all did where we have hymn books, things like that, uh, but often it was in a chant form, and so uh, very likely Moses would have said the words and then they would have repeated them. And then he would give them another little phrase and they would repeat that to, the, to him. And so that's how, uh, of course, they would have known of the words of the song. But they all sang, they all joined into the song of praise unto the Lord. Now, I didn't want to spend just a whole lot of time there. I wanted just to, to notice the song, and it is very beautiful. The words are, I'd ask you to go back and just look at that. Uh, it is poetry. It's a little difficult. You have to kind of interpret and put your, uh, put your poetical eyes on as you read through that, but uh, it's very beautiful, and I encourage you to go back and study a little bit more. But I want to get back to the, uh, uh, to the narrative that we find in verses 22 through 24 as they continue to press their way on through the wilderness. We find the murmuring at Mara uh, in verses 22 through 24. It didn't take long for the party to end. Uh, Moses took the people three days into the wilderness, and it, it states there in verse 22 that they were without water. In verse 22 it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out in the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and notice that last phrase, and found no water. The temperatures in this part of the world, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia. 
The temperatures in this part of the world would easily have reached well into the hundreds during this time of year. Three days in the desert. Three days in temperatures very, very dry, very, very hot, with no water to drink. Anyone who's ever been with a group of people through any kind of uncomfortable situation knows what's going to happen next. When people get hot and there's no water, what happens? They start complaining, right? And let's not start pointing fingers too fast because if I was up in that heat with no water, I'd be complaining right along with them. Why isn't there any water? Why have you taken us out here? Wasn't it enough for us just to die in Egypt that you had to bring us all the way out here and, and make us thirst to death? When the caravan of two million people finally did reach water, they were in for a terrible surprise. So three days they've been searching for water. Three days they've been waiting. Now, as of yet, we haven't heard them say anything. They're, we haven't heard any murmuring or complaining, at least publicly anyway. And in verse 23, they finally get to some water. And it says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. If you'll remember the story of Ruth. Y'all remember that? And she said, Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marah, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Marah means bitter. And so, because the water was bitter, they named the place Mara, which means bitterness. So they finally get out there. I mean, here they are. I, you know, I, they, they're maybe seeing the palm trees, you know, up ahead, and they finally make it to the water, and somebody scoops down and, and maybe puts it to their mouth and, and I'm sure spit it right back out. And it was unfit to drink. There was no way. Even uh, as thirsty as they were, there's no way that they could drink this water. Now, if they weren't hard to deal with before, they definitely would be now. Look at verse 24. It says, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? I want you to look at the word murmured there. Uh, word murmur, if you don't know what it means, means to grumble, to complain, to gripe, or you insert your own word after that. Uh, but that's what it means. They started griping. They, they were upset. They were angry because there was no water to drink. And here's the question to Moses. What are we going to drink, Moses? Now, does anybody see a problem with that question? Nobody sees a problem with that? Yeah, where was, how was Moses going to get him water? Well, Moses was their intercessor to God. He was their leader, but he had been, he had been three days without water, too. I mean, he didn't have any power to get water. Well, he was a wimp. He wasn't. Uh... <laughs> he what? He, he didn't complain. Oh, he wasn't a wimp. He was. Oh, I got you. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Well, all right. I hope you are because uh, you might have to answer for that later. Here are some valid questions that we have here. How long have they been without water? Three days. How long have Moses been without water? And who were they following? No. Who had he put in front of them? That cloud, right? It represented God. Yeah, it represented God, represented the Spirit, uh, the Spirit's present with him. Okay. Who was Moses following? The cloud. The cloud. He wasn't telling the cloud where to go. And so they've been following this cloud. Moses has been following the same cloud they had for three days without water, just like them. 
And finally, the cloud leads them to water, and they can't drink it. But they don't ask God, where's the water? They say, Moses, where's the water? What are you going to do? How are you going to you know, give water to all these people? They can ask God. Well, I know that. But, you know, I mean, right. They thought we could ask the crowd. But the point is, is that they were complaining to the wrong person. I know. Yeah. That uh, that Moses definitely he had no power over the water themselves. Now listen to this. God had led them through the Red Sea. He had led them into the wilderness, and at their thirstiest, he had led them straight to the bitter waters. In this verse, we see three behaviors that would become common in their journeys through the wilderness. Now, it's very interesting that they did these things here, but uh, as, we, as we study the narrative of, uh, of the, the Pentateuch or the, the Torah, uh, as we look at this, sometimes God will use one story to establish a pattern that we're going to see throughout the rest of the story. And uh, we see them doing three things here that we're, that we're going to find them doing over and over and over again. First of all, uh, they were murmuring, okay? We're also going to find them over and over being tested. There's going to be some other places where it talks about them being tested. And then they're going to be challenged to, to obey God's command. So they, they were placed through tests, and through these tests, God was going to see, uh, not, not just see, but he was giving them an opportunity to either trust in him and, and just to, to believe that he was going to have some way to provide, or they could go the other direction. Now, we know that usually the problem with their murmuring was not just the griping itself. Although the griping does, it is evidence they didn't really believe that God had the power to do what he, what he needed to do. But murmuring usually led to something else called rebellion. And so it would begin with the, with the griping, it would begin with the complaining, then eventually it would, it would lead out to a, an all-out rebellion against God. And these are patterns that we're going to see over and over again. And so they're going to be faced with God's command, faced with obedience and, and uh, the command to repent. Uh, but I want you to understand that the Lord was not ignorant of their needs. When God had found, you know, the cloud wasn't looking for water and, and he didn't mistake this as being good water and, and accidentally led them out to bitter water. We have to understand that all of this was a part of what he was doing in the people. A part, of, a part of his process of getting Egypt out of them. I, I made the statement not so long ago that the, the first part that we looked in Exodus was him getting them out of Egypt. The rest of Exodus is him getting Egypt out of them. And, and in order for that to happen, they have to rely upon him completely. And he has to put them through situations where you know, they have no choice but to completely depend upon him. So I want you to understand the Lord, Lord knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what their needs were. He had a plan for this all the way. The last thing we find there in verses 25 through 27 is what happens when you believe. Uh, God, of course, has the power, and, uh, and we are put in places sometimes where uh, we're made to trust him, made to believe in him. And this is what happens when, uh, when we decide to believe in the Lord. Moses was no doubt alarmed by the whole situation. We find that he cried unto the Lord, seeking an answer to the crisis. They came to Moses and said, where's water? And so Moses went to God and he said, I don't know where water is. I'm hoping you have an idea for how we're going to get water to all these people. And so, of course, God uh, gives an answer here in verse 25. Let's go ahead and read that. It says, and he cried unto the Lord, and notice this, and the Lord showed him a tree. 
Let's go back to some of those very strange plans that God has sometimes. Now, the people come to Moses, and they say, we need water. Now, there's water there, but it could, they couldn't be drank. And so Moses goes to God, and he says, we need water. And God doesn't point to water. He doesn't say, okay, well, there's some fresh water up the road. He points at a tree. And I can just imagine Moses looking at the tree, going, I, there's probably something you're trying to tell me here. I'm not seeing what the tree is going to do. But, but God's plan is perfect. And he tells them he tells them to take the tree and put it in the water. Plan still not making a whole lot of sense. Kind of like God's plan for getting them across the river was for him to stick a rod, stick a stick over top of the water. But Moses believed, Moses obeyed, and let's see what happens as we continue reading there. Once again, God proved that even in the toughest of circumstances that he is able to provide. As we continue reading, it says... Uh, it says, he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which, notice this, when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that uh, which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, he says, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. In other words, God says, listen, I am not here to do you any harm. Okay? He says, I, I'm here to heal you. And if you'll just obey me and follow me and trust in me, I'll take care of every one of your needs. Now, he brought them to another crisis. They had just left one at the Red Sea, but God took care of that. And he had just brought them to another crisis. The water was bitter. Now, bitter water... Uh, I think has less to do with the way that it tasted and more to do with the fact that it was completely unfit to drink. It was tainted water, corrupted, uh, contaminated water. And so they would I believe they would have gotten sick if they had drunk that water. Now in verse 27, we'll read a little bit further, it says that uh, well, it says when he stuck the tree in, it made the water sweet instead of bitter. And then a little bit later, he was going to bring him to some more fountains of sweet or pools of sweet water. So if bitter water is contaminated water, then, then the sweet water is water that's good to drink. It's water that's safe, and they would be able to, uh, to drink safely from that. Now the question that we might ask is, what special medicine did the tree have? How, how did the tree cleanse the water and turn it from contaminated water to fresh water? Maybe it had some disinfected in the tree sap, okay? God thing. Anybody else with a thought there? Uh huh. With the okay. All right. Mm hmm. Okay. So uh, some symbolism here of, of uh, the, the cross and, and uh, how it's able to cleanse us or, or uh, I guess make us useful for God or, or what, what are the symbolism was there? Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I think this is what the tree did, if you want my opinion. I think the tree did exactly what Moses Rod did when he stuck it over the water. I think it, it did exactly what all the people's yelling did at the wall of Jericho. Nothing. <laughs> it was God, yeah. He's the one who had the power. God told them to do something that seemed ridiculous, but when they did it in faith, he made it work. He made it happen. And, uh, I mean, you go back to the wall of Jericho. I love using that as an example. I mean, his plan for taking down the wall was them to march around and yell at it. You can march around this church building all day long and yell at it. It's not going to fall down. It wasn't what they did. It was the God that was with them. And, uh, and so I believe that the tree that he put in the water, uh, you know, it was, just a, it was just another one of those things where he was just showing his power. And, uh, and so they, he did exactly what God said. He threw the tree in the water, and the bitter water, the contaminated water, became drinkable. It was able to quench their thirst and to give them life to continue on with the journey. And he also gave them a, vi- a visual there. Yes. And that's something that we like to cling to. Mm-hmm. And how many times do you think they told that to somebody else? Yeah, right. Where they, he took it, it was a tree that he yeah. took and threw into the water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, listen, God knows how to test, and God will take us through tests. He knows how to test. He knows when to test. And he knows the limits of those tests as well. But I want you to also understand that God knows how to bless, too. Now, he led him for three... Oh, yeah, go ahead. All, all these 20 million people, however how many it was. Two million, huh? Yeah, two million people. They was all blessed. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, God blessed him for doing what he told him to do. Yeah. And it, and it shows not only his faith, but his obedience. The reason we're not blessed many times is we're not obedient. Right. And God shows us over and over in the Old Testament that his plans don't have to make sense. Right. That if we just obey and do what he says, that he blesses, right? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. God is always for our good. Mm-hmm. Amen. Right. <laughs> so God also knows how to bless. I want you to notice in verse 27, and it says, And they came to Elim, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees. Now, for you English majors, what is threescore and ten? Seventy palm trees. Okay. And they encamped there by the waters. Uh, I want you to notice that God did two things there. First of all, he led them for three days into the wilderness without water, and when they did find water, it was bitter. And so he brought them through a test. Their faith, by, through their faith, he made the water drinkable, and they were able to press on. But I, just want, I want you to notice that the next time he brought them to water, he, di- he didn't test them. He wasn't toying with it. That, that was not, God's, God's plan was not to toy with Israel or not to, to you know, tempt them in that sense or, or try to provoke them, but... But, but he blessed them. He, he, he had taken them through the test, but the next time that they went, there was plenty of fresh water for everybody to drink, and they didn't have to go through uh, all of the, uh, the hardships and the trials that they had been through on the first. And listen, I want you to understand that God's going to bring us through some hard times as well. And there, there, there was going to be plenty of hard times left up the road for them. But God knows, he knows how to test, but he knows, he knows how to bless as well. He, he knows when we need to be pushed, and he knows when we 
need a break. We need some some just refreshment and and some release and and uh, and God knows how to do both of those perfectly. I want to end our lesson today uh, by consider, considering the final phrase of verse 25. If you look with me there, the last little phrase there says, "And there he proved them." There he proved them. This word "proved" was used once before. Uh, it was a. It was translated into a different English word. I believe it. It was test, but it was used once before, and it was when God told Abraham to do something that seemed ridiculous. After years and years and years of promising a son, he told him to go offering on a on a altar. God tested. He proved Abraham. But Abraham was righteous because he believed God. And as ridiculous as it may have sounded, as, as strange as it may have been, he didn't fight, he didn't argue, he took his son, they took their journey, and he went up on a mountain, and he built an altar. And of course God provided, uh, but he was willing to do what God had told him to. And listen, I believe this, it, it wasn't that just that he was willing to kill his son, I believe he knew that even if God allowed his son to die at that moment, somehow that boy was walking back down that hill with him because he believed the promises of God. Now listen, the people who were here at this bitter water, God had not done all his wonders in Egypt. He had not done all his works of bringing them out. He had not brought them to a crisis at the Red Sea and allowed them to cross over and, and all these other things that God had done. And, and let's not even forget all the stuff that happened in their, with their ancestors, with, with Joseph and with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham, so, you know, all the way back. He had brought them so far, he wasn't going to let them die there of thirst in the wilderness, but he was testing them uh, to believe him. He was, he was uh, giving them an opportunity to, uh, to, to meet a crisis, but to trust him for the needs uh, that they had. And so they trust God, they obeyed him, and, uh, and he used that to bless them. And listen, God had a lot more plans for them. He would bring them through a lot more tests, and they would fail some of them. They would fail a lot of them. But the good thing is with God is that although he doesn't accept failure, although he doesn't overlook sin, he is merciful. He does forgive, and he keeps his promises. And uh, we see the same benefits of that uh, here today. There are many, many times in our own lives where God's going to bring us through tests, and we're going to fail a whole bunch of them. But he's merciful, and he keeps his promises. And he's made a covenant with us as well. And I believe he says to us that if we will be obedient, just like he said to Israel, if we will be obedient, keep his commands, follow him, he'll take care of us, he'll bless. And, uh, and in those times when we do fail, he'll forgive, he'll brush us off, and he'll send us on along the way. And uh, just remember that. God may be uh, bringing you through some kind of test right now, and maybe you just come through one and realize that you flopped, you failed miserably, but God hadn't left you. Get back up, seek his forgiveness, and go on. Or maybe you're in the middle of one right now, and he's giving you a choice. You can either trust him through this, 
or you can uh, choose bitterness, choose, uh, you know, whatever. Maybe we talked a lot about anger this past Sunday and, and use that. You can, you can complain and murmur as the children of Israel did, or you can just trust God um, for what's needed. And I believe he wants you to do that. Any, uh, any thoughts, comments on lesson tonight? Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's difficult to do, but but that's the way that we should uh, approach and, and go through those situations, absolutely. And does God bless when we obey? When we trust Him through those? Yeah, He does. Uh, I'm seeing the fruit of some of that right now. And uh, and God's good. He's, he's all-powerful. We just need to trust Him. All right, let's uh, dismiss.